Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 1:27 and verse 31a. This is the word of God. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31a, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful. We come before your feet as we sing this morning in our brokenness complete. We need your word desperately in our lives. We need its truth to transform us, and we pray you would do that very thing for your glory this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Like some of you, our family likes to play board games from time to time. Uh, The board games have changed somewhat over the years as my kids have gotten older. It's been over a decade now since I dominated in Pretty Pretty Princess. But back then, uh, I came home from work one day to an unsettling situation in my living room. My two girls, who were probably around five and seven, had taken all the board games out of the cabinet and tried to make their own game on the living room floor. It was a, a vast mixture of all the different cards and pieces and currency and tokens from a dozen different games spread out and mixed together to play some kind of new game. There were no rules, no order, no semblance of sanity whatsoever. And even if you don't struggle with OCD triggers like I do, you can probably relate at some level to the stress I felt at that moment. How long is it going to take to put all these pieces and cards and boards back where they belong. As I think about it now, that disorder on my living room floor that day is much like our culture today as it relates to sexuality and gender. Each of those board games had its own design, its own rules, its own pieces. And the, proper, the key to proper enjoyment of each of those games, the way to flourish, if you will, by playing each game is to use the board and pieces and rules for that game as designed by the game's creator. Now, my girls had fun that day, make no mistake. They genuinely enjoyed the experience of mixing everything up and interchanging the pieces and the cards. But after an hour or so, all we were left with was a big mess. No lasting enjoyment to be found. With significantly higher stakes, our broader culture is attempting to abandon the creator's design for sexuality and gender. They're trying to find enjoyment by interchanging and mixing everything together. It seems fun and liberating to many to break free from God's rules, but in doing so, is resulting in one big mess, a tragedy with painful consequences and no lasting enjoyment 
to be found. Like with those board games, if we want to experience human flourishing, we must embrace our creator's design for men and women and to live accordingly. And that's what we're going to be considering this morning. Before we continue in Ephesians chapter 5, as Ben noted, with instructions for husbands and wives, the pastors thought it wise to zoom out for one message. Could have been many after preparing this, I wish it was, but for one message to consider the big picture of men and women generally because of the velocity of change and confusion on these issues in our culture. We need to revisit truths much more fundamental than we needed to even 10 years ago. As you're probably all aware, a couple of months ago during the Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson, she was asked to define the word woman, a question unthinkable and unnecessary even 20 years ago, but very much relevant and explosive today. In fact, so explosive that the judge said she could not answer the question or would not answer it because she was not a biologist, which is ironic because those with a high view of biology are not confused. Confusion comes from the novel idea that one's biology or physical body is not relevant to one's gender. In fact, your true identity, it is argued, is incidental to your body. This is sort of illustrated in the movie Avatar, or now a, a virtual ride at Disney World and a pretty amazing experience, I must say. But the premise is that the real you is operating the Avatar, this external body that lives in another world. And your actual physical body is incidental. There was a guest on Oprah Winfrey a few years ago wishing to identify as a different Gender told the story of looking into the mirror after this attempted physical change and saying, there you are. Like the real self is trapped inside and irrespective of the physical body. Sam Elberry authored an important book last year called What Does God Say About Our Bodies? And he makes the important point that everyone knows deep down that the body is not incidental to the real you. Because when someone is abused physically or sexually, no one says, who cares, it's just their body. It's not really them. No. We know something like that is very tragic and serious because it hits at the core of who you are. They harm you, not just your body. The Bible is clear that we're more than our bodies, but we are not less. Our bodies are, in fact, significant to who we are. And they reflect God's design, which is very good. Number one in your outline. Let's read again in Genesis 1 for a few verses starting in, in 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now jumping to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The first thing we see is the absolute equality. Both male and female are created in the image of God. 
equal in essence, in worth, and dignity, but also beautifully different. Now, Adam was created first and was alone, and his aloneness was something that God said isn't good. So God created woman as a helper fit for him. She wasn't a black lab. That's not what he needed. He needed woman, someone fit for him, a special creation to come alongside the man and help him to perform God's mandate, which is twofold, to reproduce and fill the earth and to have dominion or rule over creation on God's behalf. He created Adam and Eve as male and female with distinct complementary bodies. This is a binary, male, female. Not a trendy concept today, but we see binaries throughout the creation account that are complementary. Heavens, earth, light, darkness, day, night, waters above, waters beneath, land, sea, sun, moon, male, female. And these binaries are complementary. Let me define that word complementarity. A relationship in which two or more different things improves or emphasizes each other's qualities. That's what these pairs do. It's a fit or a mutual enhancement. You might say a beautiful difference. This beautiful difference was written into the very fabric of creation. The man was created first as the head or authority bearing responsibility for leadership. As the head, he names all the creation, including the woman. And then after the fall, where they rebelled against God's rule, after the fall in Genesis 3, he, the man, bears responsibility. God holds him accountable. The Lord calls the man to account, not the woman, even though the woman sinned first. This is really significant because it was, that was the role fit for him as the leader, which he failed to do. The woman's role as the helper is not a lesser role. In fact, this word helper is used in the Old Testament most often of God himself as our helper. So the woman comes alongside the man as his helper to enable them together to fulfill God's mandate, which again is to fill the earth and to exercise dominion over creation and over the creatures. The woman is especially fitted for the first part of the mandate, the filling role, because she is the one who can bear children to fill the earth. The man is especially fitted for, as the physically stronger one generally to cultivate and protect the garden, subduing creation, a role he failed to exercise with the serpent. Note that gender, male and female, and biological sex are one and the same. It is important, especially for you young people, to understand this, that throughout the history of the world, this was clear to everyone in all times and all cultures, assumed and uncontroversial until less than 20 years ago. Now, while the physical reproductive biology clearly identifies the man and woman, fulfillment or operation of this fruitfulness is not necessary for manhood and womanhood. Your maleness or femaleness does not depend on marriage or having children. Jesus was the perfectly fulfilled man who neither married nor fathered any children. Now the fall in Genesis 3 
where they rebelled, did not abolish this design. It had devastating consequences on their progeny, us today, and throughout the history of the world since. It corrupted the design, but it it did not abolish it. One scholar says it this way. God designed sexual difference for one another. Sin takes sexual difference and makes it opposed to one another. Sinful use of authority by the man as the head, whether he's abusive or passive, both are sinful. This results from the fall. Sinfulness in the woman's role as the helper also results from the fall. As does every other perversion from God's good design. Polygamy, divorce, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, gender confusion, All these inclinations may feel very normal, but all these effects result from the fall, not from God's original creation design. And we've all been affected one way or another. But we cannot say, hey, this is the way God created me. No, any deviation from God's good design is a result of the fall, no matter how normal it might feel. Furthermore, the good design for male and female roles was not overturned at the fall. As we read in the rest of the Old Testament, only men exercised official leadership in God's community. The only legitimate exception was Deborah, the godly judge who really served as a shame for Barak, who failed to lead because, as she tells him, that his enemy would be killed by a woman. We see patterns of heroic women throughout the Old Testament. In addition to Deborah, Sarah, Rebecca, Rahab, Ruth, Abigail, women who were not perfect by any means, but were influential in their helper design, the way they came alongside men. They took incredible risks, exercising great faith, and were far braver than most men. And women were not passive. Just read about J.L. in Judges 4 with her tent spike through the head of Sisera. Now let's consider the New Testament. Jesus and the apostles reaffirmed God's design, second in your outline. What we see in the New Testament is not a redemption from this design, but a redemption of this design, including male leadership. Let's consider Jesus. Before we consider what Jesus did, let's consider the obvious that Jesus is male. And he appoints 12 male apostles, not six men and six women. Now, some argue, of course he appointed all male apostles, because that's what was culturally acceptable in that day. The problem with that objection is to think about everything else Jesus did. He never cowers to the path of least resistance, does he? He's constantly going against cultural expectations. In story after story, he shocks the authorities, crossing all kinds of lines that people had drawn based on cultural expectations. It would be uncharacteristic of Jesus, wouldn't it, to bow down to some cultural expectation, especially when a lasting principle of this kind of importance is at stake. So I think on this particular issue, the idea that Jesus was afraid to upset cultural norms and he otherwise would have appointed some female apostles seems unpersuasive. If he wanted to establish some new model of spiritual leadership independent of gender, he had both the authority and the power to do that. Yet, what we do see from Jesus regarding women is remarkable, isn't it? 
He reaches out to women in unprecedented ways. He had female disciples who sat at his feet and learned from him, traveled with him, ministered to him and with him in a time when rabbis did not have female disciples. He used women as illustrations in his parables. He didn't treat them differently than men in the sense that he called them to discipleship. He called them to repentance. He didn't treat them morally superior or inferior to men. And he seemed especially sensitive to their position in society and to their vulnerability. He shows such compassion, doesn't he? Women were drawn to Jesus because of his gentleness, his authority, and his strength. You see at his cross, when nearly all the men flee, several women remain, don't they? They loved him, and they had a special place in his ministry. As one scholar says, there is no one more pro-woman than Jesus, and yet no one, by his example in his very person, who did more to affirm true manhood either. What about the apostles? Jesus said to them that when he ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit would come and instruct them in all things, everything they need to tell us, which we have, that instruction in the rest of the New Testament. So what do we see there? Well, we see the same thing. In Acts, we see a particular emphasis of women participating in mission and ministry, praying, prophesying, evangelizing, even teaching in certain contexts, but not in church leadership roles, not assigned, not assigned as pastor elders, not teaching men in the context of the local church. These Particular roles are consistently appointed to qualified men. In short, then, we see the same pattern established at creation throughout the Old Testament and reaffirmed by Jesus, that men and women are equal, yet have different complementary roles in certain cases. In Galatians 3, Paul says, when it comes to our identity in Christ, our baptism, our faith, there's neither male nor female. Just like there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Equal heirs of the salvation promises, 1 Peter. Nevertheless, Paul also says this in 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In this case, head almost certainly means authority, and the statement that the authority of a wife is her husband is followed by the statement that the authority of Christ is God, which is a really important, uh, it's really important because this principle of equal essence but different roles is played out in the incarnate Son with the Father. Christ is equal in essence with God the Father, but in his incarnation he had lowered himself, taking the role of a servant. This has no bearing on his equality with God. But they have different roles in the economy of redemption. In the same way, a wife and her husband are equal in essence, but have different roles in the economy of marriage and in the church. Next week, we'll see the marriage aspect fleshed out in Ephesians 5. But what about church leadership and teaching? Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. The context here, really important for both the teaching and authority, is the local church. And the reason Paul gives for this command is critical for interpretation. He says in the next verse, for or because 
Adam was formed first, then Eve. This statement is imperative because it explicitly means that the reason for this instruction is not some cultural situation in that local church. It's not even some accommodation because of the fall. Rather, it's rooted in the original creation design in Genesis 1 and 2. So Paul makes clear this is something true for all time, established before the fall. But there's another reason that uh, we need to understand these things are rooted in creation, an important reason. If we don't see these distinctions in the very nature of man and woman, and instead say something like this, hey, men and women are basically the same, exactly the same, but for some reason the Bible tells us that there's two or three things that women can't do, and I believe the Bible. Well, that may be admirable, but to the next generation that's not compelling. It will not produce the same conviction. People need to know why, and Paul tells us why. The why is in creation, he says, in the very nature of what a man and woman are from the beginning. Kevin DeYoung illustrates this with two basketballs. Let's say you have an indoor basketball and an outdoor basketball. They're basically the same, same function, but the context determines which one you use. They both do the same thing, basically, but we mark off one for this purpose and one for that. The rules seem arbitrary, but we follow them. That's how some people view men and women in the Bible. Basically the same, but hey, we want to submit to the scripture and apply these things depending on the context. We want to be obedient. Again, admirable, but a better way to view it is like a basketball and a football. They're similar in nature and function. You could try to use them interchangeably, but it would change the nature of both games, wouldn't it? You'd probably only pass and never dribble the football on a basketball court. You'd probably never run the option with a basketball. The rules of each game are not arbitrary, in other words. They're rooted in the nature of the ball that you're using. There's a fittedness of each ball for the respective game. That's some of what Paul is saying here. By rooting these commands regarding men and women in creation, the very nature of what a man is and what a woman is, these things are fitting and appropriate. If we understand that, then these commands and distinctions will seem less arbitrary to us and result in a more lasting conviction to be obedient to what the scripture says. Okay, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning on three categories of application for us today. And the first, letter A, is a charge to avoid overemphasizing the distinctions and to be a biblical Christian. In a sermon like this, in a church like ours, there's a lot of preaching to the choir, you might say. Orchard comes from a tradition where we have tried to hold the line on these things and stem the tide of cultural influence. And with that history comes a couple of temptations. One is to make this a rah-rah sermon, and that's not good for anyone. But secondly, we can overplay our position and overread some of the scriptures. So where are we complementarians, those who hold to what we're talking about today, where are we vulnerable? Where, where are our blind spots as it relates to the scripture? And I have two things to consider that we need to caution against. First, for this broad overview, I'm obviously handpicking passages that are relevant. Uh, we must recognize, however, that 
Nearly all instruction for godly living generally that we find in the scripture applies to us irrespective of our gender. So before we ask the question of how to live biblically as a man or woman, we first need to ask the more fundamental question, how do I live as a follower of Jesus? How do I live as a biblical Christian obedient to his word? We need to pray for the fruit of the spirit, for instance, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are fundamental and primary for all Christians, men and women. If we try to pursue some kind of biblical manhood or womanhood without the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, things will go very wrong. And this has been well documented over the last 10 years or so. Articles and podcasts about churches destroyed by some kind of pursuit of biblical manhood and strong male leadership unbalanced by the fruit of the Spirit. That will be abusive, toxic, and destructive. If we're fixated on gender distinctions at the expense of the rest of Jesus' commands and the Scripture, we can be led astray into some really unhealthy and destructive results. I've personally seen some ugly behavior on both sides of this issue and does not honor the Lord. So it's critical that we view these gender distinctions through the lens of a spirit-filled, obedient Christian. So that's one thing we can guard against. Secondly, we need to be honest about the limitations of the biblical instruction that we have on gender roles, especially as it relates to the scope of those instructions and their application. There are certain commands I think are very clear. We've read those this morning. But the scope of those instructions and the application of those are not so black and white. There's much room for healthy disagreement and exercising judgment as it relates to these things, especially as we talk about the home and the church. We'll talk about the home next week. But what about the church? The New Testament has a lot to say about women and their gifts. The very first evangelists were women. The first ones to bring and speak the good news about Jesus to men were women. And frankly, you might have the same experience as me, but the most gifted and fruitful evangelists I've known in my life have been women. We also see women exercise the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church. And in Romans 16, when Paul thanks his ministry partners, a third of them are women. Phoebe was most likely the woman who carried the letter from Corinth to Rome. As Kostenberger says, imagine if she lost the letter to the Romans. Think of the trust Paul had in her to give her such a task. In Acts 18, Apollos was a man mighty in the scriptures, we're told, but needed further instruction. Priscilla and her husband Aquila took him out of the synagogue into their home and instructed him in the scriptures. It's very clear they're both involved in this instruction. In fact, her name is listed first. And she wasn't teaching him crockpot recipes. This was, this was not in the church and it was not under the authority of the church. But Apollos learned things from her and her husband about the Bible and about Jesus that guided him in his teaching ministry. Now, there's a place for determining where the lines should be drawn and making judgment calls on these gray areas. Every church has to do that. 
orchard included. But let's make a distinction between the clear instruction regarding qualified male pastor elders and authoritative teaching ministries in the church versus some of these grayer areas. The further away we get from those clear categories, the more humility we need to have, at a minimum, about our own views. And just acknowledge that we're making judgment calls and extrapolating, which again, every church has to do. But it's not so black and white. When we don't make these distinctions between between what is more certain in black and white versus what is gray, it can lead to unhealthy extremes. I've seen things written like, men can't learn from women, can't read a book by a woman, can't listen to a class taught by a woman, can't report to a woman at work, can't stop my car and ask a woman for directions. That's how ridiculous it can become. I'm not joking. So let's remember, just because we may have something right doctrinally doesn't mean we can't be wrong about all the implications and applications of that. It certainly doesn't mean we can't be wrong about having the wrong spirit about these things, right? It's possible to become overly fixated on these distinctions, overzealous in our application of these truths. Last thing I'll say on this point is this. One common and I think valid critique of the egalitarian or feminist reading of Scripture is that they've accommodated to the culture, and I think that's fair. Well, complementarians, those who hold the view we're advocating today, we can be guilty of this too. And we can superimpose our cultural masculine and feminine categories onto the Scripture as well. It's possible to be more closely tied to some 1950s American standard that doesn't even make sense in other cultures. Instead, we want to be tied to the scriptures. So let's have a proper humility about our views and focus first and foremost on being a biblical Christian, faithfully representing Christ to one another. Secondly, letter B, live out God's design as men, women, boys, and girls. So having guarded against an overzealous application of these things, let's consider now how to live out God's design for our specific gender. As John Piper helpfully proposes, when your son or daughter asks you, how do I live as a godly man? How do I live as a godly woman? What do you say? Well, again, the most important instructions, living as a follower of Jesus, will apply to both. But there are unique things to each gender in the scripture. So how do we distill those things down? Kevin DeYoung wrote a very good and relatively short book on this topic just last year, and I commend that to you. There's a display copy in the foyer, and I'm lifting his outline for this point directly from one of the chapters as noted in your bulletin. And he tries to make things as simple as the ABCs, and I found these, I found these very helpful. Hopefully you will as well. Appearance, body, character, demeanor, and eager posture. As he does in the book, I'll run through these principles briefly in in the order they appear in the references of the Bible instead of alphabetically, at risk of confusion. But each of these apply to boys, girls, men, women, married, single, who were all in relationships of some kind in the church. So first, eager posture. In the beginning, Adam was created to be the head, the leader Eve is the helper, the one who comes alongside. By nature, we should be eager and ready to assume that respective role. I like that he uses the word posture because there's flexibility implied 
in that. Certainly a man can have a helping role in many cases. I think of my own job, for instance. It's more of a helper. I come alongside the leadership of our company uh, to help them execute their vision. Conversely, women are leading in various contexts, certainly, and can have a great leadership gift. As DeYoung says, the exhortation is for men to stand up, not for women to sit down. I like that. So the posture for a godly woman is one of helping, eager to support. And men, a posture of leading, which doesn't mean eager to be in control, but eager to take responsibility and sacrificing for the good of others. At a minimum, men, this means owning our mistakes and failures and sins and leading those you influence by your repentance. But it also means taking responsibility for those you're leading in their sins, their mistakes, in a certain degree. Think of Jesus on the cross. In his case, none of the sins for which he died were his own, not a single one. Yet he took responsibility for all of them. In the same way, godly men are to have a posture to take responsibility in servant leadership. Second, body. Our culture says the physical body is incidental to your gender. The real you may not match your biology or your body. The, the God's word completely rejects that idea. There's a complementary fittedness between male and female. That's obvious outwardly, isn't it? And that physical fittedness mirrors the fittedness of the underlying nature of male and female. Accordingly, the prohibition of sexual activity among the same sex is very clear throughout the entire Bible particularly Romans 1, where Paul highlights this exchange of fittedness of creation into perversion. Now again, sin may feel very normal. It generally does. And we've all been affected one way or another. That's why we need his word and and the Holy Spirit. And these perversions are not new, by the way. The very top of the social ladder in Rome included sexual outlets for all kinds of perversions, prostitutes, slaves, young boys, you name it. But in God's creation, the male and female body shows us what ought to be in marriage, the design of what should be. Third, appearance. There's a debate about Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. We covered this when we went through Corinthians, 1 Corinthians a couple of years ago. But one thing is very clear and crosses all cultures and times. Paul wants the appearance and dress of women to look like women, and the appearance and dress of men to look like men. He emphasizes that when they pray and prophesy, they honor the distinctions between the sexes. And he brings it back again, interestingly, to the creation, order, and design. So one simple way we can live out God's design as a man or woman is for our dress and appearance to honor those gender distinctions. To appear in a manner that looks like the opposite gender, men wearing lipstick, for instance, it's confusing the genders and is ungodly. You know, the details of application, of course, vary by culture. If I wore a kilt here this morning versus in Scotland, it's going to be received differently. But each culture gives its own cues that we need. Men should look like men. Women should look like women. And there's a beauty of complementarity reflecting God's design in that. Fourth, demeanor. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us two 
metaphors for his ministry, one male and one female, only a few verses apart. In 2.7, he says this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then in verse 11, he says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Here we see the design reflected in demeanor. There's a gentle nurturing that a woman demonstrates seen most especially in how she cares for children. And for a man, there's a demeanor of exhortation, encouragement, giving charge to someone. Again, especially as it relates to the leadership of his children. Now again, these are not mutually exclusive demeanors. Paul himself, a man, is saying that he demonstrated both of these demeanors toward this church. But the fact that he has these categories, right, uh, of male and female and uses them is instructive for how we live out this design as men and women. Finally, character. There's a thread through Scripture about women and true beauty, and a thread through Scripture about men and true strength. Girls love beauty. Boys love strength. I don't want to caveat everything to death, but of course a woman can appreciate strength. Of course a man can appreciate beauty. But there's a fittedness that I think, even without the Scriptures, is hard to deny. Girls are wired for beauty. Peter tells them, do not let your beauty, do not let your adorning be merely external. Rather seek true beauty. Women, you're wired for beauty, so let your character be demonstrated by a godly beauty, a gentleness of spirit, modeled by the women of old in the Bible, as Peter says. Women, whether you're a mother or not, you can model this true beauty for younger women. Boys are wired for strength. When I was young, we did a lot of pretend war, sword fighting, stupid feats of strength. Okay? Now today, you see some of that, but you also see it in the kind of video games, as sad as that is, that boys are drawn to. But whether real or virtual, the point is this. Boys have a fascination, a character fascination with strength. So, boys, men, seek true strength, godly strength. This plays into the fittedness of your eager posture for leadership. In 1 Kings 2, King David is on his deathbed. Okay, he's passing the baton of leadership to his son Solomon. And he says this to his son, show yourself a man. Okay, and the way the king goes on to describe what that means, to show yourself a man, is this. Flex your biceps. No, doesn't say that. <laughs> Try to control everybody. No. This is what he says. Obey the Lord. Seek to understand his commandments, his statutes, and follow them in all you do in your leadership. That's what a man is. That's how a man leads in true strength. So boys, men, you want to show yourself a man? It's not trying to be in control. It's not flexing your muscles. It's not taking mindless physical risks for no reason. It's reading the word of God, seeking to understand what it says, and then having the courage and bravery to obey that at all costs, regardless of how hard you think it is to do so. That's true strength. That's the character of a godly man. Now, men... Uh, if you're not a father, pour into younger men to help them grow in this discipleship. And fathers, 
please, don't just be an authority, but model for others in your leadership respect for authority. I cannot emphasize this enough. Model self-discipline. Model submitting to others. Show what that looks like. Like most things in life, this is more caught than taught. I can tell my son, for instance, hey, you need to listen to me. Authority is important in the Bible, and I'm your authority. But if he watches my life, and I don't like what the Bible says in a particular area, so I don't do it, don't submit to it. I don't like what my pastors say. I don't listen. I don't like what my boss says, so I'm not going to do it. I don't like what the president of the United States says, so I don't respect him. I can tell you what my son's takeaway from me will be about authority. And it won't be what I tell him to do. It will be what I do. True beauty and true strength. Finally, I want to end this message on a pastoral note. Let her see. Perhaps you or someone you love is struggling with any number of deviations from God's good design for manhood and womanhood, including same-sex attraction or gender confusion. First, I want to tell you something very important, so listen carefully. Every person in this room, okay, everyone here without exception, is sexually broken in some way. We're all born into sin because of that fall we talked about. We're all tempted to believe lies as it relates to God's good design for marriage and our sexuality. All of that. All of us are affected. They may be different lies than the ones that you struggle with, but they're lies nonetheless. Regardless of what your feelings are telling you, regardless of what our culture is telling you, Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true and every man a liar. Okay, our culture says, listen to your heart to know what's true about you. God says through Jeremiah, don't listen to your heart. Your heart is desperately sick. We must cling to God's word, external truth, not internal feelings. We must follow our creator's design in order to flourish by the power of the Holy Spirit. Making up our own rules like my kids mixing up the board games only leads to confusion, pain, and disaster. It might feel liberating, but it will end in tragedy. And the stakes here are much, much higher. If you're struggling or confused by your own feelings and what the culture says, you're not alone, my friend. Reach out to myself, please. One of the pastors, a youth leader, a man or woman that you trust. We are in this together, church. Okay, let's talk about it. Don't struggle alone. For all of us, then, our first impulse should be love for those struggling. As we struggle, maybe with different things, but they're struggling. There's no place for mocking, joking, or otherwise demeaning someone. These lies are destroying people's lives and pulling them away from eternal hope, which is found through the preaching of the word in the church, because they perceive the church as the most unwelcome place, and there's nothing funny about that. Look at how Jesus treated those outcasts by religious authorities. He treated them with, with compassion and truth. Like all of us, they were too broken 
to fix themselves. It's the same today. People are deceived by lies, lies in their own mind, lies of the culture, lies from the evil one. So we first need to demonstrate love. But we also need to be truthful in that love. I've known in my life, and perhaps you have as well, known someone who struggles with anorexia, a tragic and destructive condition, excruciating to watch. They look at themselves in the mirror and can perceive a body that is overweight, even though the reality is that they're dangerously underweight. It's not loving to affirm them in their self-perception. Hey, if you think you're overweight, then you are overweight. No, that's not loving. That's not seeking the best for them. Through our compassion, they need the truth, which they'll only hear through love. Likewise, those who struggle with sexuality, with their gender, as they're deceived, as they struggle, they might offend you. They might lash out at you, call you horribly unfair names. Do not respond in kind. Absorb it for Jesus. They need our love, our compassion, our willingness to come alongside them and be a true friend, our willingness to tell them the truth about themselves and the truth about ourselves, broken sinners, and the truth about Jesus, the only one who can make any of us whole again. Amen? There's a sense in which every one of us is born into a condition like anorexia. We can look into the mirror and do not naturally perceive ourselves to be spiritually dead in need of a resurrection. We do not naturally perceive ourselves to be sinners in the hands of a holy God. You may not perceive yourself that way, but without Christ, it's the truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. Here's the good news. There's hope for every single one of us. There's hope for you, and I would love to talk to you about that. No struggle, no condition, no perversion is too corrupted for Jesus. God's truth of the gospel is that we can be redeemed through Jesus Christ. Your soul can be redeemed this very day, and your body can be redeemed in that great day, hopefully soon, a day that all God's people wait for eagerly, when Jesus in his glorified physical body comes again to take our corrupted, broken, fallen bodies and make them like his. Maranatha. Please stand as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for the rescue, the healing that comes from Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning who are struggling with different lies the enemy's thrown at us, different lies from our flesh, from the world. May we confess those. May we talk to each other. Lord, may we bring truth to light that we might be healed, that we might understand what Jesus has done. And Lord, we do long for that day. While we wrestle with sin right now, we're forgiven, but we long to be rid of sin in our bodies. We long for you to come back and make us new, transform us to be like you. We long for that, Father. For those here this morning who do not know you, or are standing on the outside of the family, as it were. May you cause them to be born again. May they see themselves for who they are in that mirror by your Holy Spirit, a sinner who needs to be saved. May they repent 
May they turn to you. May they give their lives to you that they might be forgiven, that they might be resurrected spiritually right now and resurrected physically in that great day as we sing to you and worship you forever. Amen.